Hi, and welcome to the Team Deacons podcast. This podcast is a dialogue between Roger and James Deacons, joined by Matt Wyman, starting from a submitted question and ending who knows where. We're also joined by guests on occasion. We're connecting through Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio. If you'd like to submit a question, please do so by emailing pod, P-O-D, at rogerdeacons.com. Today, we're so pleased to have a member of our crew and our family. He truly is an amazing key grip with whom we've had the pleasure of working on many films. A few of his films are Dead Man Walking, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, A Beautiful Mind, Spider-Man 2, The Departed, The Post, Birdman, Ghostbusters, Blade Runner 2049, and the list just goes on and on. We're so pleased to be joined today by Mitch Lillian. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you for having me. So, Mitch, how did you get to where you are now? At age five, did you want to be a grip? Hurt near. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Um, Yeah. I uh, got a job for the summer at a uh, commercial production company. The company was making the transition from doing stills to commercials. And the director was, uh, director cameraman was a guy named Melvin Sokolsky. And he was a phenomenal fashion photographer. And I uh, got the job for the summer. The studio manager took ill and uh, I took his job. Wow. uh, Yeah. So you took his job as studio manager? I took his job Not as grip. studio manager, but he was a grip. He was he was uh, in the union as a grip, and he was staff as a studio manager. And that's the way it worked. The studio manager was a grip. So uh, basically, he trained me as quickly as he could. Um, and by October, I was running the studio with no experience at all. <laughs> I would order the order the equipment. I would order. Grip, electric, camera, everything based on the purchase orders from before. But I had no knowledge of what I was doing at all. And I would order lights with no bulbs and I would order camera with no. One day we got to the location at 6 30 in the morning. I ordered the camera package and no Warhol head. Uh, uh. <laughs> you know? uh, so it was really on the job training. So, what, what kind of work was it? I mean, and what was, kind of jobs was the studio doing? Uh, commercials. He was a huge, huge commercial director. And we had, uh, sounds crazy, but we had seven, at least seven directors at all times. Wow. One of them was Ridley Scott. One of them was Tony Scott and Melvin. Big, very big names. And uh, mm-hmm. it was it was quite a challenge, but, you know, it, it was a quick way to learn. <laughs> Is that, was that working with a lot of different uh, cameramen? In those days, most of the directors yeah. were directed cameramen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Occasionally you'd get one that was not. But So you were in that job, and then did you decide it would be easier just to focus on gripping as opposed to managing a whole studio? I don't think I decided anything. I think it was just like a rolling stone. I just ended up uh, – I'd stayed there for – about four years, and then it became apparent that I was going to stay a grip and time to get out and work freelance. And I was fortunate enough to work with another grip that was, uh, you know, very generous with his knowledge. And I just best boyed for him. And so, what, but why, why did you leave the uh, commercial company? It, it was time to leave. It was just one of those a growth thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, did you want to work on films as opposed to commercials, or, or was it? I think I was too young to even know. I was not yet 20. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. He, was, he was always <laughs> the youngest one in the New York wow, crowd. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I had worked in a motorcycle shop as a kid. I was more hands-on and enjoyed the mechanics of being a grip more than, more than anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I noticed on your days off on films, you tend to go to uh, uh, Home Depot or somewhere, you know, <laughs> some store to kind of get more it's a stuff. Blue collar thing. 
<laughs> so can you define what a grip does, what, what the job of a grip is? I could give rough guidelines. After 40-some-odd oh, 40, 40 years, I could give rough <laughs> guidelines. I couldn't define it. <laughs> uh, basically, a grip is responsible for any kind of camera support, whether the camera's on a crane or it's on dolly track or it's rigged to a car or out the window of a building or on a roof or what have you. Um, a grip is responsible for any uh, control of lighting. The electricians, lamp operators generally supply the light and the grips control the light to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, a grip is responsible for, depending upon where you're working, um, wilding walls and uh, supporting the, the grid to light from. Uh, basically anything mechanical other than special effects is what mm -hmm. a grip does. Um, uh, some people would say that an uh, electrician makes the light and we make the dark. <laughs> you know? That's a good one. Does it differ from job to job? Very much so. Very much. Depending upon how the different DPs work, it can really differ. Depending upon where you are, can, it can really differ. Some people do a lot more hard lighting. Years ago, and I think the times have changed too. Years ago, the thing I loved was setting flags and nets and stuff like that. You rarely do that anymore. Anymore, mm. um, People tend to big, use bigger, broader, softer sources. And different DPs work different ways. Some, some DPs have an idea of what they want, and they just tell you and run with the ball. Some DPs uh, have very definite ideas. Some are very controlling. Some are very uh, free to just let it evolve. And truthfully, having worked with Roger for so long, what most most DPs say, what would Roger do? <laughs> really? And, and I, would say, I don't do the opposite. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> some, some do. Some do. Um, but I would actually say that almost all DPs ask that. I mean, they almost all, you know, they they all get stymied and they say, well, what, what would Roger do? What would Roger do? <laughs> it would run around like a headless chicken not knowing what to do as well, probably. <laughs> yeah, um, we talked to Bill Pope yesterday and he told us that uh, one time you told him how something was done. I can't even remember what it was about. But yeah, remember? Right, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how we did it. and. Yeah. <laughs> So sometimes do they come to you and say, okay, this is what we want to do. How do we do it? Yeah, very often. Very, yeah. very often. So yeah. you're, you have to have that imagination in your head on how to put it yeah, together. Yeah, and also you have to have a realistic view of what's involved in the physical hardware and the physical weight of things and the space things take, which is often not not the case. Mm -hmm. One of the most common things is you'll do poor man's process with a car or something, and people always have a very unrealistic idea of how much space that takes. Yeah, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you talk about? Um, is there any film that stands out when you first started? When you first started work? Because I'm kind of interested in how things have changed. I think it was you telling me one time a certain cinematographer was shooting a day scene in a phone box and it did so many lights and so many flags the actor couldn't actually get into the phone box was that I, I right was you wasn't it yeah it was I, yeah, wish right. I, could say, I wish i could say it was very early in my career but it wasn't so oh, early wasn't it that early yeah <laughs> yeah we, we lit the stand in in the uh, phone booth we you know, fought all the reflections of the glass and put up all sorts of solids and bounces and this and that. And, uh, all right, let's get the stand in out and put the first team in. And nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I'm sometimes quite shocked where we work together and, and 
you kind of work on something, you get so involved on a sort of micro whatever of lighting a shot, and then you walk away to get a cup of tea and you look back at it and there's a kind of seeming chaos you've created. But it makes sense when you look through the camera, but when you see what everything that's around you, it feels so chaotic. Right. We call that the Poncelet kitchen uh, syndrome. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. As in dead man walking. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that was a good one, yeah. I was actually thinking, we think alike, you see, because I was actually thinking of that when I mentioned it. Yeah. We had so much bounce material around that one kitchen, didn't we? It was, like, mind-blowing. And, and everything outside of the frame was kind of white and bouncing light. It was crazy. <laughs> And that was a film that was, you know, we were trying to be ultra realistic on it. <laughs> kind of Gosh. interesting. So yeah, go, going back though, um, when you first started, kind of what was your experience of kind of working on a, on, on a movie as a grip? I loved it. I loved it. Um, what did you early, love about it most, you know? I, I think I loved the, uh, the hands-on experience. Yeah. And the funny thing is over time, you kind of get away from being hands-on, which is... yeah just what happens but i i love the mechanics of it and i love this problem problem solving of it it's you know it's just great and in the old days wasn't the key grip in charge of safety well i remember that yeah Yeah. i mean that that's something that some like to say i kind of feel a responsibility for safety but i Legally, you, you don't want to be in that position. Yeah. You know, it's an un- <laughs> uncomfortable right. position nowadays to be in. But, yeah, yeah I mean, I like to say, feel that my job is to look look after the camera crew and the shooting crew mm-hmm. in terms of safety. Uh, I feel that's a, a grip's responsibility. Well, you're also building rigs, like car rigs, where the cameraman's hanging out of the car or um, whatever. And I do remember you've called me a couple of times going, Roger won't put on the seatbelt. Will you talk to him? <laughs> well, it's not any cars, is it? Remember that helicopter on Courage Under Fire? Oh, I'm going to send you the picture. <laughs> <laughs> certain things I wouldn't do now. <laughs> I look at that picture. I keep it in my phone just to remember that that's what we did. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> literally strapped Roger to the side of a helicopter sitting on a bicycle seat. I remember that. (laughs) It's a good shot, though. (laughs) But so there's a lot of um, pressure, actually, on creating those rigs. One, because they have to be safe. But two, they have to be done yesterday, which Mm -hmm. is always the problem. And three, they can't be too expensive. So how do you deal with that pressure? You tend to overdo everything. You tend, the best, best way to be safe is just be redundant. If, if you're going to use one bolt, use two. If there's, you know, one rope, use two. You double up on everything. Everything's got to be redundant. And yeah, and not give in to the pressure, right? When they say, well, why aren't we ready yet? It's like, hey, it takes the time that it takes. I think most, to be fair, I think most people see that you're moving at a good pace and you're not stopping for coffee while you're trying to get the job done. And uh, I don't feel often... The pressure terribly. You usually know what you have to do, you know, mm-hmm. how quickly you have to do it. Well, and also hopefully there have been enough prep so you know what you're doing ahead of time. So yeah. it's not on the day, you know. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> Mitch, something I found interesting, you know, mentioning that you're responsible for the shadows and just talking about your job and setting up flags and whatnot. A cinematographer obviously is expected to be the master of light and shadows and understand how light works. A grip, maybe, you know, you're not getting that technical training as you're jumping on from the start as a, as a young grip or something. How did you develop your uh, knack for understanding how light worked and understanding how things went? Or is it just over time that you did it? And- yeah, I think it's just on-the-job training. But I have to say that when you're learning to set flags as a young grip, and all of a sudden you realize when you bring the flag closer to the light, it's a softer cut and you bring it closer to the subject, it's a harder cut or the bigger the source, the softer the light. Um, it, you, all of a, it, it, you all of a sudden, it, it's a knowledge that comes on all of a sudden. And, it's like, and then it's exciting. It's really exciting. 
Well, that's great. So how important are the tech scouts? And talk a little bit about yeah, what you do on the tech scouts. What's your usual prep time on a movie? Usually between four and six weeks, sometimes more. But I think the tech scouts are essential. And that's one thing that's scaring me about the, all these uh, COVID-19 recommendations. They're talking about much more virtual scouting. And for a grip, I don't think it's possible. I mm -hmm. think you need to physically be at the location, visually see it. And no, I, I, yeah, and it's like looking at location photographs. You know, I sit with a director looking at location photographs and you go through reams and reams of them and you settle on seeing three or four different locations and then you get there and it's nothing like the photograph. Right. You know what I mean? It's really hard because they might be shot on a huge wide lens and sometimes they don't shoot what's behind them when they shoot. So when you see the location, yeah, there's one shot, but that's not what the scene is. Behind you might be, I don't know, a highway or something that you just don't want. Right. You know? uh, so it, I think that's an impossible thing, isn't it? So you like being on the scouts. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, you know, think about... Uh, True Grit, the location for the shootout, you wouldn't have known that that was a a, a right. bulldozer ride down into the valley. Right. You would, right. I mean, so are there some times where you go on the tech scout and haven't seen the location before, and so you see a problem that nobody else has seen before, and you get to yeah. tell them that? Yeah. Well, that was one in particular, that, that, yeah. um, that bowl where the shootout took place on True Grit, because you needed basically to build a road down to the location, because yeah. what we had to do with that tracking vehicle and everything was, there was no way of getting it down there, simple as yeah. that. Do you try and, even before the tech scout, because that's usually a little bit further down the line, do you try and visit the locations on your own? I've tried, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah that sometimes it's good to be there by yourself. Yeah, right, rather than with 30 people, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I find. I mean, we do it, don't we? We, we go on a, maybe a, a tech scout with a whole crew, but it's very hard to really study it and talk. So we usually go back, yeah. don't we, with Billy or whoever the uh, yeah. gaffer is at the time and then sort of walk it through just on your own without the pressure of everybody else around you know and then also on tech scouts i'm usually talking with a director more than i am with anybody else so you need that time don't you and every every time you go back you see something different yeah yeah, yeah. can you let's talk about something in specific if that's all right sure. whilst we're on true grit can you talk about when we first looked at that where that night shoot was on true grit and the amount of rigging that in Las Vegas? No, no. The one that was, um, you know, the night scene, uh, Greaser Bob's Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's a classic example. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's okay to say how many lights we put up. Yeah, we, no, yeah, absolutely. Sure. It's all on, on. record. We, yeah. yeah. We rigged about 84 large lights, eight, Mainly 18Ks, some were 18K pars, some were lens, lens you know, Fresnels. Uh, not so much at the top of the of the Mesa, but a little ways down. And uh, decks had to be built. We had to level, build level decks, and then zip line the lights down to it. That was a two wow. and a half two and a half week rig. So I mean, that couldn't have been done without scouting at all. I mean, that was that was. An insane amount, and and pre lighting as well. I mean, we you know it was at least one night of folk just focusing the lamps. And that was to see just just see to see the desert. You couldn't see the desert without it, right? But it was also to shoot what maybe thirty different setups in like yeah. two two or three nights. Yeah. So people say, well, why do you need all that? Why can't you shoot the shot shots individually? And yet you're kind of trying to shoot a schedule, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And not, those lights weren't all used at the same time. Right. Obviously, you know, they were used depending upon which direction we were looking. Right. When, but, when the schedule first gets published, do you look at it and sometimes go to the AD and say, uh, 
I don't know how you're going to make this switch over or something because you all, know what ent- it entails. Yeah, all the time. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That schedule really is a moving target for quite a while. Yeah. yeah. So at and, what point is the key grip brought on? Is it weeks? Is it months? Are you brought on while they're still talking about, is the AD still making their schedule or that's all past that? Usually about four weeks. Usually you, your official start date is about four weeks or five weeks uh, ahead of time. Different jobs, different things. Uh, West Side Story, which recently completed, I'd say I probably had started 10 weeks out or 12 weeks out and then stopped for about four weeks and then came back on. Um Men in Black was the same thing. There were issues in the stage that we had to start so far in advance. You know, we had to start before construction just to figure out, could we get the camera to the right height? Can we, you know, do certain things if the set is placed in a certain area? And are you working with set builders or production design through the DP or different people to say, you know, if it's built like this, we won't be able to do a certain thing or we're going to need to rig to this wall so it has to be built to a certain standard. Like, Can you talk about how you work with set design and anything? Oh, yeah. Uh, usually it's with the uh, uh, art director, usually a production designer, you know, puts his blessing on the design, but then usually it's the art director that's dealing with the structural issues and, uh, yeah, work very, co- very closely. Um, with the uh, art director in terms of wilding walls, what, you know, there's got to be certain structural members that can't wild. Should it be here or should it be there? I don't know if, you know, we're going to back the camera out the, out the side of the set. Do we not have the set up against the wall or do we not have a column there? Or is that not a double clad wall? Or, you know. When you say wilding walls, what does that mean? Uh, to take one of the walls out. Be able to move it out. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is uh, that works very differently from territory to territory. I'm in both Local 80 in California and Local 52 in New York, and they work entirely opposite. Really? In that, How do in they that work? Respect. Well, in Local 80, the set is built by a different local, by Local 44, and they build the set and they're responsible for the set till the very moment you roll film on. So if you were pre-lighting for the first time and you wanted to pull a wall, you wouldn't pull the wall. Local 44 would pull the wall. Wow. If once the camera rolls on that set, then it's the grip's responsibility. Uh, we, don't, we don't always know how the set is built. Wow. Local 52 is more of a mixed local. The, the set builders are in the same local, and we work differently. The set builders build all the components. They build the windows. They build the door frames. They'll build the shelving units. They'll build the kitchen cabinets, and then the grips will assemble it. The grips will stand the walls up. The grips will fly the ceiling pieces, and we're involved in it from day one. I kind of feel better about that system because you have a hand in it and you have more influence. If you know Roger uses a jib arm for everything and you want to have room outside the set or you want to be able to swing the arm around, you have some inside knowledge of how that set should be built. Yeah. Well, talking about how there are different ways of working, when we did Blade Runner 2049 and you went over to Budapest, that was different, right? Because that's the European way and the Hungarian way. So tell us. That was very different. You know, basically working the British, even though it's Europe, we call the British system. uh, The electricians tend to do more of what in the United States we would call grip work. They, They do a lot of the flagging and flying some of the bounces and diffusion frames and stuff like that up to a certain size when it gets much bigger than the grips take over. But uh, yeah, that was an interesting experience because I kind of thought I had more to do. And then 
didn't have that much to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did, but not all the time because the electricians would set flags and that, that type of thing. So it was different, but we always figure it out no matter where we go. You know, we recently were in Amsterdam, same thing. It was European system and uh, we all speak the same language. But in a way, though, with Amsterdam, because we had done so much time all together, and then we came to Amsterdam, they may have their way of working, but we are already settled in our way of working. Yeah. So it's a little different. It's like, yeah. okay, guys, but do it this way. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, they adapted to us a little bit more mm -hmm. because it was such a short time there. Yeah. Yes, and and the the um, the Dutch keys, right, had come to new york wasn't it when we were yeah. shooting there just to see our process and so yeah. it was much more um everything was known about each other before we started shooting there which it needed to be because we only had like a what five days shooting in yeah. amsterdam right. yeah if that very very rapid and some of that was night shoot we, yeah the, yeah the, we finished a night shoot and got on a plane to new mexico didn't we from <laughs> amsterdam <laughs> but um going back to blade runner i mean you were talking about set building and that. The hardest thing I thought on Blade Runner was the best thing for me about you being there is overseeing the the way the sets were placed on the stage and built so that we could get the camera positions we wanted and also the kind of lighting rigs we were doing. Mm -hmm. But the things we didn't have control over was actually the way the sets were built, right? Yeah. Because yeah. instead of some instead of a construction company i mean instead of um, art department hiring in film construction uh crew the crew they hired there were actually just a uh, uh, regular builders yeah a re regular builders so they virtually built these uh, sets to last like I, they were building <laughs> and when we had to move a wall it was a long yeah. procedure yeah, that, <laughs> yeah i mean that was the biggest uh, drawback about that uh, whole shoot wasn't it really I yeah thought. that was very strange construction methods yeah i think that they also everything was built from the ground up where we hang stuff so huge timbers <laughs> and a lot of obstructions and it was quite the challenge they hire a different construction company for each set and uh. when they when they're gone when the set is built they leave so and they're you gone you don't have any yeah. backup really there's right. no nobody responsible for the set, which is a little bit to get used to. I guess if you're used to that system and you communicate in Hungarian, it could probably work, but it was it was a challenge for us. And it seems to me that anytime we had to move a wall, even though we had told them we were going to have to move a wall and everything, it was like a three-hour procedure. I mean, it was really hard. Because yeah. it hadn't really been... Yeah, allowed for. You could say what you wanted about where you needed to put the camera and which pieces you needed to have float. Mm -hmm. But on the, and then on the day, you found us like nine-inch nails or <laughs> screws yeah. on through everything. But their attitude was, yes, it, it does float. It takes three hours. Yeah, it but takes three it hours. Does they float. have no concept of the film time. <laughs> yeah. And they have no concept really that the set is only there for a few days while you yeah. shoot it, and then right. it can go. These <laughs> things were built like they were built Building to last, concrete right? Was, uh, <laughs> was, was a new one. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, the, uh, the floors were built eight eight feet up, but set on concrete. Yeah, bizarre. Yeah. And then you had the opposite problem in Goldfinch, where all the sets were so tiny, and yeah. you had to, I guess there was a lot of rigging of the lights outside and things yeah, like that. Well, that, that, was, that was a real challenge. That was... Mm -hmm. An interesting challenge, we shot a New York City, I guess you'd say a brownstone or a townhouse. We shot it up in Westchester County somewhere. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in a remote, you know, much more remote location. Just so you can get around. Yeah, just so you can get outside and light it. I mean, that was easier then, but then when we did the Bed-Stuy brownstone, oh, that was yeah. hard. Because yeah. first of all, you couldn't get equipment in and out. Everybody had to move from the door. You know? yeah. What do you prefer? Yeah. Do you prefer studios where you have ultimate control or, or do you like locations? Because just thinking of that, I mean, the reason we went upstate New York to do the, 
the one apartment was it was a major location and you really need some control and you know just getting in and out i remember we had scouted on fifth avenue right some of these apartments and you go well the elevator's like what five by four if that and how are you gonna you know how are you gonna get up and down with the logistics of it but sometimes people don't really take into consideration i think i like uh i like both i like the challenge of the location of being on a practical location and sometimes i like the restrictions of being on a practical location but then there are times that you really do need a studio and have to have it and i like the ability to be able to move a giant wall or float a ceiling or you know. Yeah, they don't like it when you do that in their apartments. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> I like studios actually because it's like a resting period in a way. You're in one place yeah. and you're usually the production office is nearby and I, I like it for that. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know. We were talking to Sam Mendes the other day, right? And just thinking about Revolutionary Road and the pros and cons of whether whether that would have been more efficient if it had been done on stage or the fact that there was the one house and you had to do so much to work, make it work when you were like shooting in the kitchen in the morning and then you were upstairs in the afternoon and then you were back down in the kitchen and because you're trying to shoot the film in order and continuity but that meant so much jumping around within side a location it's tricky, isn't it? But I mean, you did something similar in the, uh, what was it, the woman in the window? Uh-huh. Uh, where you actually, they built a set, right? They built a tiered set. That was a, uh, it was a four story set. Right. And the original concept was we were gonna build it up four stories. And uh, then, the ceiling of the armory was 90 feet tall, but even with 90 foot tall ceiling, building a four story set took you up over 50 feet. There still wasn't a practical way of working. So we ended up breaking it down to building the first floor and second floor, overlapping the second floor and third floor and building the fourth floor. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. just so we weren't working it, 50 feet in the air. Right. You know, so otherwise you'd have to platform all the way around. You'd almost need an elevator to get up there. It was, so that, that was a real challenge. Right. But uh, how did you feel at that relative to shooting in the house on Revolutionary Road, say? What's the advantages and disadvantages and what, what does each, oh. how, how is that a problem for you each way or what's the benefit? Well, when you see Woman in the Window, you'll see there's a lot of, a lot of shots that we literally pulled the whole side of the staircase. So it was a wall that was 20 feet high going from second floor to the third floor, first floor to the second floor, bringing the actress down the stairs. So it wouldn't have been possible on a location. Right. Absolutely. Now, now were those shots worked out then before the decision was made as to whether it'd be on location or a set? Yeah. No, those were, those were all worked yeah. out. Ahead so there was real no question about what yeah, you were going to do you were going to shoot on a set whatever yeah that had yeah. to be done yeah uh there yeah. was some challenges though the set got built in the wrong spot <laughs> oh. <laughs> Oops. so uh, yeah there was some challenges we uh we hung a superstructure above and uh then when they came in and built the set they built the set two feet off to one side which kind uh -oh. of changed the dynamics uh -oh. a lot more than you would think yeah. 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 But it was very well engineered and everything really did come apart easily. Well, what about when you did um Birdman? What were the challenges on that because supposedly uh, one take and all that? That was we had the St. James Theater as a practical location mm -hmm. and then we built the St. James St. James Theater on stage as well. And we overlapped the two. And that was a challenge because it all took place, not all, but mainly in the um, in a green room, and then the hallways leading to the stage, and then on the stage. And there was 
a big sequence that took you through the hallways. So we built it on stage originally with the walls a little wider than a normal hallway. Mm -hmm. And Inaratu wanted to build tension. So we shot for a few days with the walls maybe slightly 15, 20% wider than Mm -hmm. it normally would have been. And then little by little each day, we squeezed the walls in and squeezed the walls in. So naturally people were getting tense (laughs) just by the nature of time. And then by squeezing them in, it, it just built an incredible amount of tension. Wow. Yeah. yeah, but you want that on the film, maybe not on the set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But How it worked, funny. but it was, it was, that was a challenge. And we had a couple of good rigs on that. We had, uh, in this actual theater, we had our, we built a ramp that had to be, to take them from the second floor down onto the stage for Steadicam to come down. And the ramp was so big and was such an incline that we had to put a hinge in the middle of the ramp with a counterweight and flip the ramp so it made a square on casters and spin it around and have it become a piece of the scenery. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That was quite a challenge. How are you coming up with stuff like that? Like, are are you, you know, is a lot of diagrams and just your knowledge over time? Are you relying on a lot of your your grips and just different people for engineering points? I think just a lot of talking. You know, a lot of talking it through and scouting, scouting it, scouting it, and rescouting it. You know, I think every time we scouted it, we came up with a different idea. And also being informed on what the shot actually is. Yeah. So you're not trying to build it, you know, in a vacuum, but knowing where the camera needs to be. Well, that, that, and that's essential. And that, mm-hmm. you'd be surprised how much that doesn't happen, you know, having that knowledge ahead of time. I would be surprised. (laughs) Doesn't make sense to me. (laughs) But then why wasn't it just painted out? The ramp, the ramp was so big that would have occupied the set. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. But do you find, you find more and more you're on films now without the backgrounds? I mean, you're on films which more and more CGI. How much how much time do you spend against a blue screen? I'd say quite a bit more, but not as much as you would think. I suspect probably in the coming months, probably going to be a lot more. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, I think if I would have suggested doing it in front of a blue or, or, or blue or green screen or paint out the ramp, I think with Inaratu's style of directing, I would have been gone in about a minute. Right, right, right. That's good to hear, isn't it, really? That some people still want to do it in camera, yeah. yeah. So you really have to get into the head of the DP and the director and sort of get an idea of what they what they like and what they don't like. Got to be a bit yeah, scary it's, sometimes. A bit scary? <laughs> Getting into the DP's head. Well, yeah, it goes without but, saying, yeah. But that's, that's the advantage of working with somebody for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, true. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. What were some of your biggest challenges on different films? Don't tell me it was Fargo doing the night shots on Fargo, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that was the only challenge there was moving around in all the clothing. <laughs> yeah, you were the Michelin yeah, tire man on that one. <laughs> it was like, what was it, minus 20 or something? And it was pretty, on the rooftop, you, and they had yeah. the, thermo- the thermometer on it. Yeah, you bought this wonderful suit, this really <laughs> thermal insulated suit. And you stood there saying, look at this, I'm as warm as toast. And then you realize you couldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> and you did look like the Michelin tire yeah. man. Yeah. You couldn't move. You couldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the challenges? I don't know. There's always something. I mean, uh, yeah. think about the getting up to the berms on Sicario and dragging you through the mud on Sicario. (laughs) We put Roger in a plastic bag, literally in a plastic bag. I think you enjoyed that, though, didn't you? And put a pipe, a 40-foot-long pipe on a uh, sled and dragged him through the mud. (laughs) It's nice when when you're working on different scales, though, isn't it? I mentioned Fargo because that's the first time we worked together. Yeah. Um, And it was a very small film, relatively, wasn't it? 
uh, as yeah. opposed to something like a, a Blade Runner or even Goldfinch, really. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is nice, and it's also nice to be able to work in with different constraints, budgetary and space and pace and everything. You know, adapting to that. It's that's the fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite? Smaller budgets or larger budgets? I don't like the huge budgets mm. because you become a little fish in a big pond. And mm-hmm. I, I think I prefer the, you know, not no, not so small that you can't do anything on. I think somehow on all the Cone Brothers shows, that's been a great, a great budget. I think you know. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also they always want to do so much in camera too. Yeah. So that gives you more of a challenge, which and is so great. prepped as well, isn't it? I mean it's so prepped, so you really think it through, you know what you're doing. It's very organized. Right. Yeah. And you have people that are listen willing to listen to your problems. Yeah. 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 What what's the general size of your crew? I mean, I obviously different movies, but on the low side and on the high side. I'd say varies from a seven-man crew to a 17-man crew uh, based on what, what the job is. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have a major setup and you have more people than that. It really yeah. varies. And mostly it's people you've worked with for a long time, right? Because, I mean, uh-huh. every time we work together, I know yeah. most of your crew, yeah. Except yeah. when you go on a low budget and you go to someplace and they're pressuring you to have locals. I remember a couple of times when... You had to have some locals that hadn't gripped so much. I just remember the, talking the, to you about that. That's the best part. That's the <laughs> best part. That's that's when you meet people and you. Yeah, it wasn't on the day when they had to be on the roof. I I remember that. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you like to know that somebody knows how to tie a knot. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Especially but, uh, if you're hanging off it. Yeah. <laughs> but but that is the best part is really meeting yeah. different people everywhere you go. Yeah. All right. So, what do you what do you think for like a, a young grip or somebody is the most important piece of equipment? If you had to pick like one thing, is it a C stand? Is it a certain clip or like and talk about d- different pieces of equipment and stuff? Most most important piece of equipment, I'd say your eyes. Your eyes. Just, yeah. Don't leave them know, at home. Use them. <laughs> use them. Look to see when somebody's talking. Look to see when it's a good time to ask the question. Look when, when it's safe to carry something through the set. Sense your surroundings. That's, that's the most important thing. What traits in a cinematographer can make your job easier? Organization. Uh. I mean, working with Roger, you get blueprints. Working <laughs> with some other people, you get a rough idea. Working with other people, you get no idea. And often that is not their fault, but often it filters down from yeah, the top. Yeah. And it could be even just the organization of the script. It could be the organization of the production. It could be many different things. But having plans and having an idea of what we're going to do, what do, what you're going to do makes it so well, much easier. If you're on one of those jobs where there isn't that much pre-planning, do you then just have to up your equipment, mm-hmm. which is usually a lower budget job where they don't want exactly you to and have you, extra equipment? Yeah, the the less less planning, the more you have to be prepared. You mm-hmm. know, maybe you don't need a techno crane there, but you ought to have a techno crane. Yeah. Maybe you don't need a condor there, but you don't know if you don't need it. Yeah, such a waste of money. Yeah, especially but, uh, if you can find city like New York. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a plan, you have a lot of equipment unnecessarily there. Yeah. But you have a base level of equipment, right? You, can you explain yeah. you, what you have? Because you have your own truck. And, right. You know, is we, it most grip, key grips have their own equipment? I think nowadays most key grips have their own grip package, usually a, a trailer, you know, semi-trailer between 40 feet, 48 feet. And you carry a certain amount of C-stands and a certain amount of high boys and two dollies. Usually you carry a larger dolly for outside and smaller dolly for inside. A lot of times you carry a jib on nowadays. You carry 150 feet of track, uh, various overheads and that type of thing. 
And and let's go back to what we were saying before about how much things have changed. I mean, I, I feel even just the, my short career in America, the lighting styles changed, not mine so much as other people. I mean, I, I felt when I, I mean, I've always been doing soft lighting, but that hasn't been quite so normal. I mean, came in quite slowly, didn't it, from the 60s. I mean, even when I first came here, there were a lot of people using hard light. You'd look at movies and a lot of Hollywood movies were still quite hard light. How's that changed? Because now the the bounce material or the diffusion material gets bigger and bigger, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, now what one would say is a large bounce is would have been unthinkable 20, 30 years ago. Now, you know, we fly 50 by 50 overheads on cranes for diffusion and huge bounces on cranes and use petty bones to support them. That would have never been done. That would have never been done. I mean, right. for a, when I started out, a big source was a Mole Richardson 4K soft light. And right. that, was, that was it. You know, now most people would look at what comes out of that and they'd say it's a hard light. Right. It's really strange, isn't it, how, you know, the cameras that advanced, they've got faster. We've got digital cameras now that are even faster than film. Lenses are faster. <laughs> the quality, you can shoot wide open. And yet lighting units get bigger and diffusion get bigger and bounces get bigger. And why is that, do you think? Uh, I, part of it, I think, is ego. <laughs> um, oh. Are you looking at me? No, I can't even see you actually. Oh. <laughs> you're, you're behind the audio recording window. Oh, good, good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, uh, I, I think that there's people that feel that they have to have everything has to be shot underneath a big silk. Uh, sometimes standard fares having a construction crane and a 50 by 50 silk overhead. That's funny because I don't remember ever doing that on an exterior. I mean, I love big soft sources, but <laughs> I see pictures in the American cinematographer and, and, you know, like the whole areas are silked off. I, I kind of never understand that really. <laughs> I can only remember doing it one time with you. What was that? And that was on um, uh, the Siege when we shot the van coming through the window in California. Oh, downtown. Right, because we oh, had to yeah, be, yeah. we built a facade and we were right. theoretically inside, so you couldn't have bright right. sunlight inside. Right, but that was the, right. the only logical It was reason. kind of different, yeah, circumstances, wasn't yeah. it? It was like we yeah. were creating a set with our silks and diffusions, right. yeah, rather than just being on an exterior and silking off the sunlight just because right. it looks nicer. Yeah. I much but, rather wait for the weather, but you can't do that all the time. Right. <laughs> I've yeah, just but, been lucky. I've never had to do it. <laughs> and really, that's really the only way that actually works is waiting for the weather because uh, you can only make a 50 by 50 foot shadow. And that's not that big. Yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> right. So let me ask you this. Things like dollies and stuff like that, which kind of goes with the camera, but that gets rented from the grip. They don't rent it from somewhere else. It either gets rented from the grip or from our dolly rental, camera support rental house. Mm -hmm. But most of the other equipment gets usually rented from the grip. Really? And so do some grips rent it and then rent it on to the production company if they don't have it in their kit? I don't think so. I think, I think not for myself. If I don't have it, I get it, from, you know, I have production get it from someplace else. I don't think you ever want to be the middleman in a situation like that. Yeah. What's, what's the hardest thing to rig? Is it a car? Is there anything that stands out more? Not necessarily a car. Uh, cars we've pretty got, have pretty much down pat. Um, I think water is one of the hardest things to work on. It's, everything's moving, everything's fluid. Um, I think in New York, one of the challenges is vertical. You know, everything's it's a vertical city. You know, mm. a lot of times you're too high to reach with a condor and you have to rig from above and I think I think the heights in New York are probably one of the tougher things. Are you afraid of heights? Not from pointing at them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. Yeah, what do you think, you know, 
you're working with a bunch of different cinematographers, but um, what do you think is a good attribute of a good key grip? Like if you had to ask a bunch of DPs and they had to say what they like or don't like, and if you had to recommend another key grip, what do you think is something that's crucial for you to be in that job? I think first is probably the ability to listen and then to translate their thoughts. Some of the younger DPs have great ideas about, you know, what they want, but they haven't seen it done. So I think the ability to listen to their ideas and then translate that to actual hardware is probably the most important attribute. And then let's face it, you're in a tiny space and getting along. You know, getting along with people is probably under tense situations, probably the most important attribute. So do Absolutely. you do you meet with um, DPs before accepting a job and sort of take that into account? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you can kind of see, hmm, this might not be a good match. Yeah. I've been horribly wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard one to compete. Uh, but I'd agree with you entirely. I think the most important thing is is listening for all of us whether it's a cinematographer or a key grip and knowing when to say something and when not actually for me i know sometimes i'm thinking about something i don't want somebody giving a suggestion because i've got something going through my head and you're really great at that and you'll just take me yeah. aside when i have a cup of tea or something and say well what if we did it this way or do you really need a crane here or you know what i mean i think it's you've got a really great ability to judge that moment the right moment so it's not just oh thank you technique you know what i mean it's it's not it's it's the passion for the job it's the love of it it's getting on i mean you have a wonderful crew and everybody gets on and we, i'm really missing it because we really have a lot of fun yeah. as well as do the work yeah. and when you yeah. When you have a system of doing the work and you have a confidence that you're doing it as a team, then you can have fun doing it, can't you? You can relax into it somehow, you know. It's also good to be able to fall back on past experiences. Oh, let's do this yeah. the way we did it on Dead Man Walking. Or let's do yeah. this the way we did it on Blade Runner. Oh, let's not do it that way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, it's, experience counts for a lot. But it's funny, when I, when I left film school, I was a very kind of famous cinematographer who said to me, you can't work as a cinematographer till you've experienced every situation you might come up against, which <laughs> I thought was absolutely ridiculous <laughs> because everything you come up against is different. You know what I mean? Right. It's like... Silly little sets sometimes, like going back to Goldfinch, shooting in the bedroom on the second or third floor at Bedford Stuyvesant and trying to do a sunlight effect through the curtains at three floors up, you know, with a <laughs> shutter and a lamp. And I mean, it's a silly little problem, but it's still a problem. Something to be solved. I'd certainly never done that in those circumstances before. I might have done it in a studio, but it's a totally different thing, isn't it? Oddly enough, that was one of the most extreme spatial experiences I, I think I've ever been involved in. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was quite was extraordinary. Very tough. <laughs> it's funny when you get a location and then you find you've actually got to treat it like a set because you've got to take out all the natural light so you can control it. And then you're shooting in right. winter, so you're starting the day in darkness. You the the light comes up as you start shooting and then you shoot into the night so you can't use daylight you can't use the natural light you've got to base basically flag it all out and relight the place right. as though it was natural light you know matt you asked about earlier about uh, the difference between shooting on location or being on set or maybe you, you asked roger um mm. whether you're on stage or you're on on a practical location and the one thing that stands out for me is when you're on a stage, you always have to make the magic happen. It doesn't exist there. And when you're on a practical location, sometimes you, the magic is created for you and you just see it. That's, that's an yeah, interesting Yeah, that's really way. true. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I like both like you, but I, I think I suppose if I had one or the other, I'd rather shoot on location. Because of that, I like, I like 
having to react to something that's happening in a real space. Mm -hmm. And as you say, you know, if you're on stage, you're kind of creating it. If you're doing animation, you're doing it even more. You're doing the whole thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. When you watch a movie, are you aware of great rigs or something? Or, or do you think, how did they do that and start thinking about it? Hopefully not. <laughs> I mean, yeah. hopefully not. Yeah. Uh, but certainly like Skyfall, that's all yeah. I can watch. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, Skyfall 1917, that's all I could watch, you know, <laughs> really? especially having not been there. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, oh, I can only imagine, you know, what that was like. <laughs> but 1917, you must have had some knowledge because you did Birdman, which is a similar concept, yeah. even if it's not in quite the same situation. Yeah, but one was in hallways and one, yeah, know, one exactly, was in yeah. Uh, yeah. a battlefield. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And is there a rig that you've never been able to do that you'd love to do? You know, some sort of rig situation that you thought, oh, I'd love to try my hand at? Not that I can think of offhand, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's something, you know. Well, how is it? How has it changed? In uh, you know, we talked about the change in lighting and the fusions and that. But in terms of camera moves, uh, I mean, the invention of this stabilizers and you know, movies or stabilize what we had in the UK, or just simply Steadicam and a Trinity and stuff. How's that impacted what you do as a camera grip? Oh, it's it's made it so much uh, more creative i mean virtually now there's really no excuse for not being able to move the camera anywhere um mm -hmm. and it's also made it so much easier before i started look back at people building sleeper track you know took dozens of guys you know you couldn't just decide on on the on the day to do something everything had to be planned out now you have stabilized cameras and you know stabilized arms on pursuit cars and that kind of thing and the sky's the limit now do you I find do you find there's more camera movement now because of that the films you work i on? do yes much yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah sometimes unnecessarily so but yes certainly makes i i first first shot came to my mind was on oh brother art there when we were shooting at alligator lake do you remember that Oh, and yeah. we had an Aquila, and you said about the well, railway sleepers, and we had, we wanted to track the, what was it, a 75-foot Aquila? I think it was, it was... Uh, I think it was an 84-foot crane. You could build it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it was about 84 feet. Oh, my. That, that, was, uh, that was an amazing feat. The mosquitoes, the swamp, and the <laughs> alligators. Yeah. Uh, we built uh, an underwater platform for the actors to be on and for the dolly grip to be on. And uh, and then we built track for the crane. That crane was not meant, meant to track. Right. And uh, generally when there's a, a grip on the chassis of the crane, that's not necessarily the dolly grip. That person gets a bump in rate to dolly grip rate. Well, that day we had 11 people get the bump <laughs> wow. to dolly grip rate. Wow. Yeah. 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 Wow. Just uh, took 11 people to push the crane. Yeah, yeah it was an amazing shot. Uh, if anybody listening doesn't know what we're talking to, it's the baptism in the uh, the water when, uh, yeah, the baptism. And we're craning down on a high, from a high, very, very high shot down to almost water level. In fact, it was water level and pushing in as we go in. And I remember after about four takes, the whole crane, the whole thing started sinking into the, <laughs> into the swamp, didn't it? And, but I was thinking about the advances in technology because then we didn't have a stabilized head. We were just doing that on a PowerPod Classic, I think it was, or, yeah. or probably, because yeah. I used that a lot, right? And uh, But with a stabilized head, we wouldn't have had the problems we had on that. We wouldn't have had to lay, well, probably safety-wise, you'd still have to lay the track pretty smoothly. But yeah. those little bubbles that we were getting over and again when one yeah. bit sank more than the <laughs> other, you know, it was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think uh, there were any stabilized heads then. I think the Libra no, head there wasn't even no. Wow. Uh, no, I don't think it was. I don't think it's it was. True. Certainly, yeah, we didn't so, have it anyway. <laughs> you can do a lousy job and get away with it now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it does free it up a bit, doesn't it? It yeah. does allow you to do certain things you couldn't have before. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, well, certainly we couldn't have done 1917 without stabilizing, but even the crane shots in 1917 would have been very hard without a stabilized head. Right. Yeah. yeah. And all the handoffs you can do now, you know, you can pass yeah. the camera through yeah. a window or yeah. you know, yeah. one vehicle it's amazing. to another. Yeah. 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 Can you guys talk about that, like the different types of grips? I mean, when we talked to Gary Hems uh, on uh, 1917. English grip. I mean, talking about it, uh, guys carrying the camera and all, and you talking about, you know, where someone who may not know thinks, oh, well, the only people touching the camera are camera operators or DP or something, but their grip's actually getting involved and in bringing the camera around and dolly grips. Just talk about the different roles that you might have as a grip. Yeah, you know, generally you think of the dolly grip as being behind the dolly, but often the dolly grip is on the head of the crane. Um, there's different crane, different kind of cranes that you run. One thing I always think back on is uh, we did a job, I think it was Courage Under Fire, and we shot on a lot, and the uh, lot best boy was with us, and his father was a grip. And I said, oh, what did your father do? He said, oh, well, he was a musical crane grip. And that's <laughs> all he did was work on musicals. Wow. Yeah. He just wow. had a knack wow. for it, I guess. And that, that, that yeah. Was it. yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I always think back. I remember working on a commercial with a, a BNC and uh, four grips. We did a handheld shot with a BNC. We put two pipes through the bottom of the uh, BNC and four grips carried the BNC. You know, down a school hallway. You know, was, wow, that yeah. was a heavy camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it is surprising. It's a great technique, though, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you think all the all the latest technology. Sometimes you don't need it, yeah, because you're just underselling the camera in a, on a pipe and a, two guys carrying it, and yeah. if they do it, walk walk like Groucho Marx, you know, <laughs> and keep it amazingly steady. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is, it, is that something where you need, you know, specific grips, have specific training? Or as a grip, do you need to know how to do everything and operate uh, Condor to a Technocrane to carrying the camera a certain way? Like, or people licensed in certain things? I think that it's not necessarily licensing. I mean, I think there are people that have an aptitude for certain things more than others. There are certainly grips that are better at heights. And there's certainly grips that have a sense of the lighting better and then there's grips that have a sense of the movement or the rhythm or a uh, sense of framing uh, so I think that there's definitely grips that specialize in those things and I know on my crew I'll have if something has to be done lighting wise where they have to really see something I have one particular guy that I'll use and if uh, something has to be rigged or built I'll have a different guy you know and you kind of tend to learn everybody's strengths and weaknesses. And another area that probably comes in um, handy for too is best boy. Who's going to be your best boy? Because that's a talent. And maybe you could explain what a best boy is. And uh, if The best boy is your second in command and basically deals with all the paperwork, all the time cards, all the ordering, replenishing of everything. And he's also usually the most experienced beyond uh, just underneath the key. So in the event somebody's got to take over for a reason or you, you have to go scout something, he's the guy that can fill your shoes. But the best boy is you live and die by the best boy. I mean, yeah, but you don't see the best boy on set that much because they're so, always in the truck doing all that paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Or something. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm I wouldn't prepping, know. Aren't they? they're, they're prepping. They're, they're making sure everything's yeah. ready for the next they you know, the afternoon really hard. or the next yeah. day. Or, yeah. yeah. The best boy is basically your memory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going back to the crane, I mean, you know, like what, there's only so many opportunities where you have an expensive piece of machinery like that and you're not letting somebody who's never used it use it on the day of the shoot or set. How do you even learn a, something like that? Like some of these grip things, where do you get the exposure and experience to, to get, you know, a high level? I, I think through time, I think through time, you know, certainly 
you take these modular cranes like the giraffe crane or something like that that isn't doesn't come out pre-built you have to assemble it that takes time takes weeks of actually learning the easiest way to build it the safest way to build it um how many people it takes to build it um that doesn't just fall into your lap it's not something you just say oh bob go build the crane you've never built it before uh with the techno cranes generally they come from whatever rental house they come in a trailer they get wheeled out and they come with a technician uh crane tech that already knows the crane and is also skilled at running the pickle running the telescope in and out on the crane it's usually the crane tech that comes out with that runs the pickle sometimes do the crane techs end up being grips oh yeah they're they're usually grips yeah i mean and then stop being a oh, crane tech uh, and then move into gripping often it works the opposite way ah because they get older and one was you know was stability or more what do one thing you know mm-hmm. and settle into one one area i think it gets a little boring being a tech for any one piece of equipment and do you have any advice for somebody who wants to be a grip? Do they just start out as a PA and start having a way? Or do you have to find a team and hope somebody lets them on? Like, how, how do you get involved as a young filmmaker? How do, you, how do you bring people on? Do you bring people on? Do you? Yeah, I love to. It's a funny thing. It's people always, nowadays, you know, a lot of studios frown upon nepotism. But the fact is, is that it, it always was a father-son business. And that is the one main way you learn. There are different programs. I don't think you really learn about it in school. I don't think film school teaches yeah. it. I think there's a couple of trade schools, maybe Full Sail or something like that, that might teach some of it. But the best way is uh, on-the-job training. You come on as the 10th guy and you learn how to carry plywood onto the set for a dance floor. And then little by little, you learn how to set a stand. And then you learn how to set a flag. And then somebody shows you how the flag works, whether it's, like I was saying before, closer to the light or further from the light or on the side of the light or on the, underneath the light, and I think from exposure. And you can very very quickly see who has the aptitude for all of it or some of it or none of it. Thanks for listening. If you want more information and further discussion, check out the forums at www rogerdeacons.com. Becoming a member is free, and you can ask follow-up questions there. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more new questions and topics. Also, check us out on Instagram at team.deacons. See you next time.